We're going we're gonna to study, uh, I think we're going to just study one psalm, one long psalm, Psalm 78. So if you have your Bibles, it's a little bit of a history lesson tonight. So I won't, I won't belabor it with a real long message. Something to, a lot of things to consider. Psalm 78. It's 72 verses, so we're going to move through it. We're actually going to, like I said, it's a history lesson, so we're going to move between the psalm and the historical events that, uh, that the psalm speaks about. And as we've studied through the psalms, we know that they're so applicable to our lives because they're real things that happen to real people, and we see their real true reactions, and we see how God also interacts in the midst of those events. So it's always instructive to us as we study the Psalms, because you know, we can take certain circumstances and situations, and we can, and we can just apply them right to our lives, and then we can see where we need to grow, we can see where we need to change, where we need, we need further instruction. And so a lot of things can come out of the study of the Psalms. Um, Psalm 78 is a history lesson. Um, the history of the nation from Moses to David. And God's wonderful works throughout that history. And so... Uh, we will we'll see how God responds and how God works in the lives of the people as they go through the, the different things that they went through. It's also written to instruct future generations. You know, it says, it's been said that uh, he who, uh, what, forgets history is doomed to repeat it. So um, as we see the historical events recorded in scriptures, they're there for us. They're there for the future generations to learn from and that we won't make those same mistakes, hopefully, prayerfully. Um, we're going to also see that many of the future generations did make those same mistakes. And so, you know, they're real, like I said, they're real people. They go through real, real things and, um, and hopefully we learn from them. Uh, written to instruct future generations also to be thankful to God for His grace and His mercy, and thankful despite their rebellion. You know, God is gracious because it's His character. God is gracious and merciful because it's His nature. And many times we do things in rebellion against God and uh, yet we still see his faithfulness. So this psalm, like many of the psalms, to instruct us, to remind us, to be grateful for his grace and mercy. Because we can think back in our lives, times that we've been rebellious against, we've been disobedient against God, and yet he continues to bless us. He gives us opportunities to repent. He, he gives us second and third and fourth chances you know, even though we may sin over and over again, he continues to give us opportunities to repent and to change and come back to him. 
And also that the children of those who went through these things were supposed to learn from their parents' mistakes and not emulate their bad behavior. You know, a lot of times we don't want to we don't want to even tell our children a lot of the things that we did when we were their age, you know, for fear that they may either, either follow our ways or, or think less of us or whatever. But I, I think part of what this psalm d does is it sort of exposes that, you know, gives, gives you um, sort of freedom to, to say to your children or for them to say to their children, listen, we, we messed up, you know, we, we, we were rebellious. Our, our forefathers rebelled against God, but we want better for you, you know, so to teach those future generations. So we'll be moving from the psalm accounts to the historical accounts that, that they refer to and to see, you know, we'll just get a feel for what the psalmist um, words are and how they were inspired by past events. So jumping in. Psalm 78, verses 1 through 4. A contemplation of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, telling the generation to come, the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. So see here, verses 1 through 4, a testimony to the people of the importance of declaring God's goodness to the next generation. And he speaks in verse 1 of the, the law, the, those ordinances and practices and rituals prescribed in the law of Moses, but that the people were to do them and follow them, not to try to earn their way into God's favor, but to glorify him and, and to, to draw closer to him. So those, those things that, that were prescribed in the Old Testament law of Moses that the people were supposed to do so that they could maintain and, and, uh, and grow in their relationship with God. And as they performed those ceremonies, Remember God's relationship with them. You know, not to do it just out of ritual, but to do it because of that relationship that he wants with them and, and with us. And the people were to speak to their children in parables. In other words, in, in simple stories that they could understand. You know, when Jesus taught in parables, you know, he did it for, he did it for uh, different reasons, but one of them was to bring a very simple concept um, to the people so that they could understand a spiritual truth. And what we're supposed to do with our children, and which is why we have Children's Church here, to teach them at their level so that they can understand the things of God, so that they can understand God's goodness and grace in a way that they can relate to. So he says here to um, to. He says, I will open my mouth in a parable, in a parable to teach the young ones in ways that they can understand, in lessons that, can, that they can learn and, um, and, and that they'll grow, you know, at their, at their level. It's never too young. It's never too early to teach our children about God. You know, 
um, uh, part of this also is also to, to you know, be open with your children about the things of God. You know, not to hide them. You know, to, be, to just have it part of your, your routine, part of your family life. So that they can see that that's just who you are. It's not something you do on Sundays and Wednesdays. It's part of who you are. So to be open with, with our children about those things. You know, they had a very, they had a, the, the Israelites had a very uh, difficult history, you know, that they had to re- try to relate to the children, you know, but, but it was something that, you know, they, they, should, they should have done because they want their children to be in a better place with the, with the Lord. Um, we're going to go back and look at Exodus 12. I think the scripture's there. Uh, verses 24 through 27. And it says, You shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. Speaking of the Passover. It will come to pass when you come into the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised, that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? That you shall say, It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. This is why we relate these things to our children, so they can bow their heads and worship the Lord. The Passover was done not just as a ritual, but as a way of relating to the next generations God's goodness, His grace. Look how He preserved them through that. And so the next generation needed to see that. That's one of the reasons why those rituals and practices were observed. So the twofold purposes of those things, as a representative, as a representation of God's relationship with them, and secondly, as a way of passing on from one generation to the next, the lessons of God's love toward them. And then he speaks here also He says, I spoke in parables and uttered dark sayings. The dark sayings were the mysteries of the history of the the nation. Those mysteries like uh, God's grace in spite of their rebellion. That's a mystery. That's something that we don't understand. But it's something that you can relate to others. And uh, on the other side of it, our rebellion is, in the face of God's grace. How could we do that? It's a mystery sometimes when we think back and we say, God, how could we have rebelled against you? Look how gracious you are to us. And yet we sin against you. So those part, part of the relating of the history is relating those, those mysteries, you know, those things that we don't quite understand, how God's grace just overshadows our sin, how his forgiveness is always there, you know, and then and then the the other side of it, how we could sin in the face of that forgiveness, and how could we rebel in the face of that? So again, teaching those things to the next generation. Deuteronomy six seven through nine says, "You shall teach them diligently to your children, and talk of them when you sit in your house." when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. So all of the time. You know, not just on certain days of the week or certain days of the year, but 
when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise up, when you sit in your house. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. They should be part of you. The relationship you have with the Lord should be part of you. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So again, that symbolism of as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know, when people enter your home, that they understand that there's evidence it's a godly home. It's a home that worships the, the Lord. Uh, and, and that our, our relationship with the Lord should not be hidden in a closet somewhere or our Bible, you know, put away on a bookshelf. But, but just, you know, to be, to be open. Not, with, not just with our children, but with, with everyone who enters our home. So, you know, that maybe they'll ask questions or they'll, they'll wonder about, you know, our relationship with the Lord. You know, so those things should be out there um, and not hidden away. And then in verses 5 through 7 of Psalm 78, the psalmist writes, For he, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children. Again, you know, passing that on, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God, not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. So the first reason for passing on that relationship is why? That they may set their hope in God. And we think about, you know, uh, we probably, if we go back and ask our parents, they probably would say the same thing about us, that, you know, it's a, a generation without hope. You know, you're turning to all of these things that you think are going to give you hope. You know, and we see, it, we see the same thing today. We see the drug, uh, drug use amongst young people on the rise and alcoholism and, and using uh, sexual promiscuity to, that they think their hope is in that stuff when their hope is in the Lord. So why do we relate our relationship with God and try to pass it on to our children? That they may set their hope in God and not the things of the earth. You know, apart from God, hope is dependent on circumstances and, and feelings. Or we put our hope in our dreams for the future. But what happens when circumstances change? What happens if we don't really feel like worshiping the Lord? And what happens if our dreams are shattered? Then is our hope gone? Well, no, the, the whole point to setting their hope in God is that we set our hope in something that doesn't change. You know, that's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, when we set our hope in God, we set our foot upon a rock. It's, it's stable. It's immovable. And so, and so it's, it's different from setting our hope in the things of the world. And that's what we want to pass on to the, to the next generation. Verse 8 through, 8 through 11. And they may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. The children of Ephraim being armed and carrying bows, turn back in the day of battle. 
They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in his law and forgot, and forgot his works and his wonders that he had shown them. So the next reason for passing on that relationship is that they don't take up, up their father's bad habits, is that they learn from those things. You know, it's like, you know, we tell our children, yeah, we did some stupid things when we were your age, but don't you do them, you know? I don't know if they're going to follow that advice or not, but, I, you know, we just let them know. We recognize years later that some of those things that we did, you know, that were, that were against God's law were not good. And, you know, the most destructive thing that we could do and that many of us did do when we were younger is to just be an out-and-out rebellion against God. So we want to let our children know that. We want to let our children know that that, you know, sometimes we did walk away, but it's not what they, you want for them. And then he goes on, Marvelous things he did in the sight of their fathers, in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through, and he made the waters stand up like a heap. So the Exodus uh, 14 account of the parting of the Red Sea, you know, the reason why that, that account was repeated over and over, and you go through the Old Testament, you see, you see the, the people speaking of God's marvelous works in, in parting the, the Red Sea. And, and imagine that miracle. Imagine being part of that. You know, the people walking through on dry land and then, and then seeing Pharaoh's army destroyed behind them. You know, how could they not just continue to, to tell of, that, of that, those marvelous miracles that God performed? And so, uh, you, you know, you can, you can go back and read in Exodus 14 that account of the, of the Red Sea crossing. And that's what he's talking about here. And then he goes on in verses 14 through 16. In the daytime also he led them with the cloud and all the night with the light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. So uh, Exodus 13, I think we have uh, that up there, verses 21 and 22, gives the historical account of what the psalmist is talking about here. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night before the people. So, in the wilderness, God led them and kept them safe, gave them a, a cloud to, to, to shade them in the daytime and a pillar of fire so that they could see before them in the evening. And so, you know, just God's presence, you know, God's presence, you know, to, to relate that to, to others, especially to our children, just about God's presence in our lives. And twice he brought forth water from a rock while the people were in the wilderness. You know, God demonstrating his desire to provide for them in a, in a mar marvelous way, in a powerful way. And it also... Remember, that, that rock represents Christ, you know, who for our sakes was struck 
to provide everlasting life for all who exercise faith in him. So, again, that beautiful picture of God's provision, you know, when, when you're thirsty, you know, physically, he provided that water. But spiritually, Christ is that water. You know, it says, says in John that if you drink of the water that he gives you, you'll never thirst again. So, you know, that, that beautiful picture throughout the scriptures, you know, just leading us to Jesus. And then the psalmist goes on, but they sinned even more against him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. And they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide meat for his people? Therefore, the Lord heard this and was furious. So a fire was kindled against Jacob and anger also came up against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Yet he had commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven, had rained down manna on them to eat and given them of the bread of heaven. Men ate angels' food. He sent them food to the full. So this, the first mention of angel food cake. And this is what God fed the people in the wilderness. You know, he provided day by day. He provided for them. But what does it say there? That they asked, asked him for the food of their fancy. And then they mocked his provision. That the manna wasn't good enough. It didn't taste good enough. They wanted meat. You know, how many times, let's make application, folks. How many times are we ungrateful for what God gives us because, you know, we, we sort of put in our order and it's not exactly like what we thought it was going to be. You know, God may bless you, but it's not according to your standards. See, he gives us according to his Standards according to what he knows is best for us. And how many times are we ungrateful or we even mock what he's given to us? Maybe it's not the job that we wanted or the house that we wanted or the car or, you know, we, we just we put our expectations on God and then we complain when he doesn't come through, you know, and yet he blessed, he provided in the wilderness all 40 years he provided for them. Remember it says in the scriptures that the, the soles of their shoes didn't even wear out. How is that possible except that God was in it? And, and, and so consider it, folks, as we apply this to our lives, it's offensive to God when we don't trust his plan for our life. You know, it's, it's an offense to him. It says in Proverbs 16.9, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. You know, we can have our plans, but it's, but it's God's direction that we want to follow for our lives. Then he goes on in verses 26 through 30. He caused an east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he brought in the south wind. He also rained meat on them like the dust, feathered fowl like the sand of the seas, 
and he let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. So they ate and were well filled, for he gave them their own desire. They were not deprived of their craving. This, is, this sounds good, that he gave them their own desire, and they weren't deprived of their craving, but it, it really isn't. Because sometimes what we ask for, God will give us, even though it's not the best for us. Numbers 11, verses 31 through 32 says, uh, gives the historical account of what the psalmist is saying. And it says there, Now a wind went out from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea, and left them fluttering near the camp, about a day's journey on this side and about a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp. Now think about it. It's like quail came out of the sky and landed all around them. A day's journey out in all directions. That's how many quail were there. They wanted meat, they got it. And it says here, um, about two cubits above the surface of the ground. And the people stayed up all that day, all night, and all the next day, and gathered the quail. He who gathered at, gathered least gathered ten homers, and spread them out for themselves all around the camp. Then in verses 19 and 20 in Numbers 11, you should go to Numbers 11 and read the whole account. It says, you shall eat not one day, but not two days, nor five days, nor ten, nor twenty, but for a whole month till it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have despised the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we ever come out of Egypt? I can just hear the people. Listen, we're no better. So we, we can't, you know, we can't say too much against those people, but why did we ever come out of Egypt? They were in slavery in Egypt. Remember? They came out of Egypt to, to enter into what God was promising for them. And the, the manna wasn't good enough, so he sent them quail until, until they had more quail than they could want. You know, sometimes God will give us what we ask for but it may not be the best thing for us. Because it says, uh, back to Psalm 78, but while the food was still in their mouths, the wrath of God came against them and slew the stoutest of them and struck down the choice men of Israel. In spite of this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wondrous works. Therefore, their, day, uh, their days he consumed in futility and their years in fear. This is the result of ungodly cravings. Ungodly cravings. See, these, these cravings and desires were not of God. They were not what God wanted for them. They were what they wanted for themselves. I read a commentary by Dave Guzik about this, and he writes, When we allow our ungodly cravings to rule our lives, God may send us what we crave and leanness into our soul as well. He writes, better to have a fat soul and be deprived of those cravings. See, it's, it's better for us to be closer to God than to fulfill those, those fleshly desires. He, and he goes on and says, this was a strict judgment, but it was a help to Israel because it taught them not to be ruled by their cravings. Then it was a huge help to the nation. See, our fleshly cravings can lead us away from God. 
Those things need to be controlled and we need to seek Him instead of our flesh. So that, that's the lesson there in, in, in that historical account. Then in verses 34 through 43, back to Psalm 78, when he slew them, then they sought him, and they returned and sought earnestly for God. Then they remembered that God was their rock, and the Most High their Redeemer. Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth, and they lied to him with their tongue, for their heart was not steadfast with him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yet, yes, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath, for he remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again. How often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember His power. The day when, they re- when He redeemed them from the enemy, when He worked His signs in Egypt and His wonders in the field of Zoan. So, you know, ungrateful, ungrateful. And, and, and again, you know, we can be that way too. We forget God when things are going well, you know. And then we complain when we go through adversity. You know, so inconsistent we are in our dealings with God. And, and he remains, and he still remains uh, faithful. You know, he says there, he says there, but he being full of compassion, in verse 38, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. You know, how many times we probably, we wouldn't have that much patience. You know, if it was up to us. So, um, remember it says, in, the, it says in, uh, in 2 Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. See, his character is faithful. And then the psalmist now recalls the plagues and the miracles of the exodus of the people from Egypt. In verses uh, 44 uh, through 55. He turned their rivers into blood and their streams that they could not drink. He sent swarms of flies among them which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He also gave their crops to the caterpillar and their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores trees with frost. He also gave up their cattle to the hail and their flocks to the fiery lightning. He cast on them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, indignation, and trouble by sending angels of destruction among them. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave their life over to the plague and destroyed all the firstborn in Egypt, the first of their strength in the tents of Ham. He made his own people go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock, and he led them on safely so they did not fear. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies, and he, and he brought them to his holy border, this mountain which his right hand had acquired, and also drove out the nations before them, allotted them an inheritance by survey, and made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. The whole historical account of the plagues and the exodus, just in those, in those verses there, and God's faithfulness to his people, and, and also his faithfulness to, to judge. 
judge the enemies of God. You know, so that we don't have to. Remember, the, the, the people looked back and remember in the, in the Exodus account, you know, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. They didn't, they didn't have to do anything but just go where the Lord led them. And he guided them through. And then he judged their enemies. God guides us. And his plan for us won't, won't be thwarted. And his plans are always good. You know, again, an, another lesson for us and for the next generations. And think about the lesson also of coming out of Egypt. You know, don't Egypt is a... Is a is symbolic of the world. You know, don't go back there. There's nothing there for us. As children of God, the world has nothing for us. You know, we're to be in this relationship with Him and not to look back at those other things. So move forward, you know, not, not back. And um, the psalmist continues, yet they tested and provoked the Most High God. It seems like you know, a roller coaster here, back and forth, and did not keep his testimonies, and tur- but turned back and acted unfaithfully like their fathers. See, the lessons were not learned. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow. You know, again, making mention here, the psalmist make, makes mention of a previous generation who didn't walk according to God's ways. You know, I think about this in, the t- in terms of, you know, maybe a family history. You know, something, something in, a, in a family that goes back for several generations and you wonder, will I ever be able to break that pattern? Whatever it happens to be, you know, and, and, and yes, you can. You don't have to follow the ways of the previous generations, whatever that is. You can set your own path. You know, as you follow God, you can say, no, I will not, I will not follow those things of the past that, that took, took them away from God. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to carve my own path out and follow His direction for my lives. You know, so we don't have to struggle in those past things. Then in verses 58 through 62, For they provoked Him to anger with their high places and moved Him to jealousy with their carved images. When God heard this, He was furious and greatly abhorred Israel so that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had placed among men, and delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hands. He also gave his people over to the sword and was furious with his inheritance. So God judges. He judges not only his enemies, but he has to to chasten us also. He has to discipline us many times also. You know, and, and it's, and, you know, think about how difficult it is for us to discipline our own children, you know. You know, like the old saying, this is going to hurt me more than it is, is you. You know, sometimes it does. It's difficult to do, but it's important. It's necessary. So God disciplined them. Why? Why was he judging his own people? Well, because they misrepresented him. They misrepresented him. And they actually were using... Uh, the ark of God as like, as, as like an amulet or, or a good luck charm. You know, and that was representative of God's presence, but it wasn't to be used that way. Steve, I think we have 1 Samuel 4 here. 
1 Samuel 4, again, going back to see the historical account of what the psalmist is talking about, says here in verse 1 through 3, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against battle, uh, to battle against the Philistines and encamped behind, beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men in the army of the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, so that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hands of our enemies. You see what they were doing? They were misrepresenting God. Then in verse 10, in that same chapter, it says, So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also, the ark of God was captured, and two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. And, and she, Phinehas' wife, going to verse 22, said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. You see, they, they, they took this symbol and they misrepresented God. You know, how many times, you know, whether it's, it's uh, you know, just a, an image, uh, a statue, uh, something, you know, that's supposed to just be a representation of God, but then, you know, people go overboard and they, and they use it as some type of a good luck charm. You know, and that's misrepresenting God. That's against his commandments. And then to finish up, verses 63 through 72, the psalmist continues, The fire consumed their young men, and their maidens were not given in marriage. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a mighty man who shouts because of wine, and he beat back his enemies. He put them to a perpetual reproach. Moreover, he rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. And he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth, which he has established forever. He also chose David, his servant, and he took him from the sheepfolds. From following the ewes that had young, that had young he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hand. So we see here God's ways. God's ways are not man's ways. He takes the, the smallest of the men from the smallest of the tribes and he uses them to, to guide and to lead over his people, David. So... And again, despite their disobedience and, and our disobedience, God desires to lead us. You know, He desires to be, um, you know, you know, our our rock and our fortress. He wants us to look to Him. So, think about the lessons that we learn from this psalm. First of all, that relationship that we have with God—that we're not to hide from our children. Make it a part of their upbringing. Make, a, make it a part of our, our daily life so that they can also see that relationship. 
And then be open. You know, be open. Tell them of the mistakes that you've made. You know, and, and, and you know, pray that they don't do the same things. But, you know, encouraging them not to follow in those ways. And then remembering His grace and His mercy, you know, and His forgiveness, you know, and, and His desire to restore us when we sin and when we, when we rebel against Him, you know. And then to be careful what we ask for, right? Because God may just give it to us, even though it may not be the best thing for us. And then when He gives those things to us, we may have to suffer the consequences of asking Him for those things. And then that God will judge and discipline us as His children because He loves us and He wants us to go the right way. He doesn't want us to get off, off the, uh, the path of righteousness. And that His faithfulness is, um, will always be there and in that His promises are true. So great lessons in this psalm. Great lessons from the history of the nation of Israel, you know, and, um, and some things that we need to just take to heart, you know, and consider. And uh, we'll, just, we'll just close in prayer.